Photographer and filmmaker Amy Vitali has traveled to more than 100 countries, bearing witness not only to violence and conflict, but also to surreal beauty and the enduring power of the human spirit. She has lived in mud huts and war zones, contracted malaria, and donned a panda suit, keeping true to her belief in the importance of living the story. Amy is an ambassador for Nikon and a contract photographer with National Geographic magazine. She's a six-time recipient of World Press Photos and published a best-selling book, Panda Love, on the secret lives of pandas. She lectures for the National Geographic Live series, and she frequently gives workshops around the world. Amy Vitali, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. It's so nice to meet you, Mia. So looking over your body of work, which really takes in the natural world and animals, uh, their connection to humans, international conflicts, and the moments of beauty and grace between all these countries and stories and lives that bring us closer to the world. We all look, but how did you learn how to see, you know, this deep noticing? Oh, that is such a good question. I think through through silence in a way. I mean, I think that the fact is when I was young, I was really introverted and just painfully shy. And I think that listening was really how I began to see. So just observing came through my inability in a way to social, I mean, I was just awkward (laughs) when I was young, maybe like a lot of young people. And I think that actually in our youth, that is such a beautiful moment to really learn the art of observation and giving space to others. And those are really important traits that I think sometimes get lost in youth that maybe we all should hang on to for our entire life. I think you've photographed in over 100 countries. It's kind of inspiring to think of it. Speaking of listening, how do you work with translators or guides, the different people who work with animals? Do you want to be the first one making the communication in silence if you don't know the language? Or do you depend on your guides? No, it's a very good question. I depend a lot on the people that are introducing me and when I need translators. And so I really spend quite a bit of time making sure that the people that are going to be representing who I am share the same ethos and ethics and that tread lightly because I'm very aware of the impact as storytellers and photographers. I mean, the world is so interconnected more than ever. And I am so aware of the impact that this can have just being there. So I do really spend quite a bit of time trying to find the right people to lead me in. Like the first thing I ever do before I even set foot anywhere is sort of, I start researching a story and I contact the local leaders or, you know, the people working in these places. And I spend a lot of time first communicating with them. Once I go to a place, I don't even start working right away. I go and meet the people involved. And once I have their blessings, it really is so important to get those blessings in the beginning and not just kind of march right into a story. I think it's important to take the time to introduce yourself, explain why you're there, what your goals are, and to be transparent about what you're trying to do. That is critical for so many reasons. One for, you know, making sure that people truly do accept you 
it also keeps you safe, to be honest, because I've worked in very dangerous places and I found the way I've stayed safe throughout those places is because the community knows who I am. The leaders have given their blessings and then it kind of spreads through the community, who I am, why I'm there. They don't feel like I'm kind of surreptitiously coming in, trying to sneak photos. I I don't work that way. I just really depend on transparency. And so to answer your question, most of the time, yes, I do have people guiding me. Even if we do speak the same language, I want people to be with me explaining who I am. And then after time, then you can start working on your own because you've built up those relationships and more importantly, the trust that comes with building relationships. So trust and relationships are essential. And I think you've photographed and made films as well in over a hundred countries. Of course, it will vary from country to country. You might explain the differences, but isn't an advantage to be a woman photographer? Well, I wouldn't know the difference. It's all I know being, you know, this is the body I was born into. And I think that whoever you are, you just find your way in. And I think that the greatest thing you could have is just empathy and sensitivity and treading lightly, because I think that that is a mistake people can make. But I will say as a woman, I know that I get access to different kinds of stories. And so there have been times in my life when I could tell right away, I wasn't going to get access as a woman working in, you know, very conservative cultures. There were just certain things that I wasn't allowed into worlds that I wasn't allowed to see. And I actually thought that was a great advantage for me because it made me turn around and look for different stories. And I realized that while I was being shut out in some ways from some stories, there were other stories that I had beautiful access to that maybe my male colleagues didn't. And that I've always felt drawn to telling the stories of women and the particular hardships and issues that they deal with around the world. And I think being a woman, you immediately connect and those bonds are very easy for me, I find that those are the people that I'm drawn to. I feel safe around other women. And very often there weren't other women journalists telling their stories. So it was important for me to be there because in a way their voices were left out of the narratives. And I thought that this was just an important part of my work. We should speak of your turning point when you were covering conflict zones, and then you decided that you wanted to focus on the moments of beauty and then eventually turn to wildlife photography. After covering conflicts for almost a decade, I had this profound moment when I began to realize and see this connection that every single conflict was deeply connected to the natural world in some way. You think about it, everything is about our resources. The environment, the planet, even wildlife is a part of the human existence. So when the environment and the natural world starts to fall apart, people suffer too. And I realized that in almost every conflict I had been covering, the story of the natural world was being left out and it was deeply interconnected to all of the other issues 
that I was covering of the human experience. And for example, I started to cover the poaching crisis. And I realized it was always being defined as this conflict, a war on the poachers. And actually, when you start to dig deeply into that story, you understand that it's very complex, essential big pieces of that story were being left out, which were, in that case, the indigenous communities living with the wildlife. Their environments started to fall apart because when you take these keystone species out, when they start to become locally extinct from an environment, the whole ecosystem starts to fall apart. The landscape suffers. It then causes problems for their own livestock, which then ripples into their own livelihoods and their own families. And it, it's complicated, but I started to understand over time, I could go to places and see over a couple of decades, how profoundly destructive all of this can be. And I just realized that I needed to start telling the whole stories about these places. Like conflicts just don't erupt for no reason. They're usually deeply connected to resources, water, food, everything. Nature is our supermarket. And for the people living closest to the natural world, many indigenous cultures are still living in these landscapes. That is their supermarket, truly. And I just felt this deep passion to go and start trying to tell a more holistic story about what we are doing to this planet and why it matters to all of us. And so even these stories that might be thousands of miles away, actually, you start to understand that we are all impacting one another's lives, particularly the cultures that are taking a lot of resources of the planet. You realize it is having an impact on people very far away. You can really hear the emotion in your voice, and I can understand how you make connection with animals and people. It's right on the surface. It's quite beautiful that you have this emotional courage to be vulnerable like that. Excuse me for saying, but I can understand now how you can kind of navigate these dangerous areas. Maybe they feel your family. Well, they are my family. I mean, I spend so much time in I go back to the same places. So it is personal. And when you see people being impacted, for example, by climate change, it is very real. And I think people in urban landscapes may not feel it in the same way as people who live on that land. And it is, it's like watching your own family suffering. I can't ignore it. Once you start feeling that deep interconnection between everything and seeing what's happening. It's like watching the future unfold in slow motion and feeling like, isn't anybody else seeing this? <laughs> when are we all going to start to care about one another? Because all of our individual choices do have impacts. And I just think the demands that we place on this planet, on the ecosystems, are what are driving conflict and human suffering. I'll say this again, but some cases it's really the scarcity of resources, just like water. In others, it's the changing climate and the loss of land, fertile lands to be able to grow food. But in the end, it's always, you know, the people living in these places that really suffer the most. All of my work today, it's not really about wildlife and it's not just about people either. It's about how deeply interconnected all of those things are. People in the human condition are the backdrop of 
every one of the stories on this planet. I really appreciate, first of all, hearing you speak about that interconnectedness, because I think that's a thing that wasn't so in the spotlight in wildlife photography and seeing it come into focus is really beautiful. A place that has always brought that particular thing into focus for me has been the Kashmir. And I know that you've photographed there as well. I was wondering if you could speak about that. And specifically, I know that environment has changed a lot in the past couple of years. Oh, well, you know, I lived, I spent four years covering the conflict. So I lived in India for five years and the majority of the four years was spent in Kashmir. At that time, I was really focusing on women and how women are being impacted by the conflict. I haven't been back. I'm actually not allowed to go back. And I did see the environment being impacted. War is brutal on people and the landscape. And I just, oh, I could weep right now thinking about how all of it is one one thing in the same. I, there's no way for me to separate the the cruelty and the impacts on both people and the planet. We are destroying each other and the planet at the same time. And I, I think that they almost drive as the environments get more destroyed. I think that it gets harder to find resources for people and that drives more conflict. And it's sort of just like a fast race to the bottom, to be honest, unless we find empathy and love in our hearts for one another, unless we start actually trying to find solutions to these long historical conflicts, I think that they are at the heart of everything. It is also connected to the natural world. And you're right. I think for so long, we've just left them as these completely separate issues and politicized them. And they're not political like the planet. <laughs> it's like, this is our one shared life raft. This is all we have. And I continue to try to find hope. We have to come to a place of love. And I know that that may sound Pollyannish to a lot of people, but it is so basic. It really is about love for all creatures, for all humanity. I don't know what to say anymore, except I just use my photos and hope that that transcends and is a universal language for people to understand and see. You can't deny things. I think that we have to stop denying these things that we all know to be true. I don't know how you can't not look at the planet and understand what's happening at this point. And to this end, not just bearing witness, you started Vital Impacts with the visual journalist Eileen Mignoni. Just tell us about its inception and the projects that you help support through the sale of these beautiful photographs. Well, I started Vital Impacts out of a desire not just to talk about the challenges that we all face, but to do something about it. I think that we're often left with this question like, okay, we know all of this is happening, but what do I do? And I felt this sense of helplessness, like watching all of these things at the same time. I also know there are amazing people and amazing progress happening kind of in these grassroots organizations where people are on the ground, actively making profound changes, positive changes. They need support. They need money. And I realized that I had this ability to connect all these amazing artists and 
ask them to support these grassroots organizations through the sale of their fine art prints. And I happen to be lucky enough to know some of the most incredible artists on the planet. And I rallied them all together and created a first began just as a print sale. And then I realized that I needed to turn this into a nonprofit and actually start more programs as well. So right now we usually have a print sale going on. We have limited edition prints, other prints which are not really offered because I am friends with a lot of these National Geographic photographers as well who have these iconic images that were really never offered for sale. And so I asked them to dig into their archives. And so we have some really unique, diverse work. I also was seeking out unrecognized talent, like people in different parts of the world that may have not had the opportunities yet to share their work to a global audience. So I really spend a lot of time just looking for new talent as well and giving opportunities to emerging talent and then putting them together in the same sales with these, you know, really well-known, incredible artists that sell their work for $100,000. And so I'm pairing them up in this space. So that's one initiative. And then another, I'm doing several different initiatives. Another one is I just got back from Kenya and I've been working with 40 Kenyan grassroots conservationists to teach visual storytelling to them because they are on the ground every day. And I felt that who gets to tell the story is equally as important because very often it's just people from outside flying in, parachuting in for a few weeks, telling their story, which is great. You know, it's good to get all of that publicity, but at the same time, I think it's so critical that the people living the stories tell their own stories. And so I'm going to be mentoring them for the next year and a half. And they've actually created their own Instagram account. It's a shared space for all 40 of them. And it's called wild.lifeincolor. And it's spelled the British way, C-O-L-O-U-R. And that's a really fun Instagram account. I think for anybody that wants to follow them, I think it's deeply encouraging for them to see new followers and making comments on their work. But I think that art is powerful. Art transcends language. It allows us to create understanding between communities and cultures and countries. You can immediately see an image and understand these universal truths. And I think there is great power to that. And so I just want to use art to change the world in a very positive way. And I'm really proud. We've actually, you know, it began as print sales that I just did with my own work, but I believe we are now coming up on over four and a half million dollars that Eileen and I have done together and raised for really incredible grassroots work on the ground. And I also have spent a lot of time finding the projects that I know are making an impact. I've seen them firsthand. I even got Jane Goodall to donate her work. And I mean, nobody, if you can imagine in all these years, nobody thought to ask Jane if she had any photos because she was always the one in front of the camera. And so we asked Jane if she had some photos and she's hand signed these pictures. She has a beautiful self-portrait that is in our sale. What an amazing opportunity to get a hand signed Jane Goodall print that she took. How extraordinary. These are beautifully printed. And I want people to look at these images in their homes, 
every day, wake up and think about this beautiful world that we live in. We have this beautiful planet and it's not too late. I think if you only look at the world through the television or news, it looks hopeless. But I have to say that I spend the majority of my life in different places, on the ground, in the field, working with the most extraordinary people. And I have such great hope that we are smart. We are going to figure out our greatest challenges, but only if we work together. And I think Vital Impacts is a metaphor for that. It's about bringing people together and realizing that we have so much more in common than the things that separate and divide us. And if we remember that and focus on what we can do together, that's the only way forward. As a small child in one of the largest cities on the Indian subcontinent, I had a gravitational attraction to Disney's rendition of The Jungle Book. Unable to read the imperialistic origins of the story, I just appreciated the animals' decisions to name themselves in my native language. Their wholehearted enthusiasm and keen knack for forest living spurred in me an insuperable curiosity. Without the words to express it, I yearned for that jungle landscape, for India. Little did I know that's just where I was. Within the concrete jungle of a megacity in growth, I couldn't identify the remnants of a natural jungle in decline. I could only dwell in a nonsensical nostalgia for a place now distant that was named in my native tongue. Identifying the environment as connected with the largely urban landscapes of daily life is a process that has taken years of learning and unlearning. Historically, many conservationists have seen humanity as inherently opposed to the environment. This thinking once led to an effort to circumscribe nature in parks and conservation areas while allowing environmental disruption to run rampant in urban environments. During our conversation, Amy Vitali expanded on the fundamental interconnectedness between these once-severed spheres. In particular, she diagnoses violence against people as a function of violence against nature. As a wildlife photographer who started her career photographing conflicts, Amy Vitali is comfortable with the human element of conservation. In conservation, as in war, humans are not an obstacle to be overcome. They are yet another vulnerable species in crisis. I appreciate Amy's empathetic acknowledgement of the people she has worked with, as well as the animals. Later on in the interview, Amy tells the story of a farmer in Bangladesh who is displaced by climate change from his ancestral lands to the bustling city of Dhaka. Although the British Empire is now long gone, I can't help but think about how metropolitan centers are built in its image. I wonder if a child growing up in Dhaka will dream about the jungle. I wonder if they'll dream in English. And now, back to the interview. I was interested to hear kind of at the beginning there, your work with Kenyan conservationists and sort of teaching visual storytelling. I was wondering, the art world, especially the gallery world, is so informed by these cultural precedents and sort of restricted even by like the involvement of capital. I was wondering how you think the art world could adapt to better support these communities, including people who are learning the art of photography or storytelling, as opposed to already ingrained in it. That is such a great question. And I, I mean, I think that part of the issue is that they always claim that they don't know who these artists are. They can't find them. I hear this often. I mean, I even remember asking a colleague, like, why don't you hire more women to be film directors? And he's like, literally looked me in the face and said, there are none. I can't find them. 
I don't know the answer to your question, but I think part of the issue is that people in those spaces claim they can't find the talent. And that's part of where I'm trying to put that missing piece in. Like, well, let me help you. And I'm going to put them in the sale along with names you do recognize so that hopefully we start elevating new voices into these rarefied spaces that, you know, people claim they can't find the artists. They are definitely out there. And then sometimes it just takes time too, just letting people develop their voices. And that's also a part of it. I think people who have gotten a little bit of success also need to take a little more time to go and and help those that come after them. And I think we need to do more of that. I do see that changing a bit in certain spaces, but there's a lot of work And we need to do more to lift up other people, other new voices that have never had that opportunity. It comes down also to communication. I'm wondering what attracts you to working with animals. I'm thinking about the honesty of communication or the directness, because you mentioned Jane Goodall. There must be a number of different languages that you have with different species. How did you learn to, to hear them? Oh, actually, I think that the language is exactly the same in a lot of ways. It is about observing and listening. And the more time I spend with these really magnificent hulking creatures and different species, I mean, I work with rhinos and elephants and giraffes and all of these incredible creatures, but I think that their universal language is very similar. And actually, I think humans are the the ones that are the most aggressive. I think if you start to learn to respect and listen to these creatures, they tell you exactly what they need. They have their own language. The interesting thing is I don't know any cases where any species would ever attack unprovoked. They have their own way of communicating. I've learned so much from these animals. It's amazing to me. I actually use some of the lessons I've learned from animals with the way I communicate with people. Sometimes I get so excited about something and I realize that you need to slow down and give space for others and let them also share a bit of who they are. And it's the same thing with animals and they're incredibly intelligent. I mean, I'll give one story about working with the elephants. They have deep empathy. They have intelligence and not just elephants. I can't stand when people think that some creatures don't have intelligence. They have just very different ways of communicating. But one story with the elephants is that I work with an organization called the Ruteti Elephant Sanctuary, and the indigenous Samburu community, it's owned and run by them, and they take care of these baby orphaned elephants as they come in. But something truly remarkable happened, which was one of the keepers, a woman, had a wound on her leg that she was too busy to take care of. And so she just ignored it and just kept doing her work. And one day, one of the elephants named Linguese goes over to a mud bath and picks up some mud in his trunk and comes over and pats her leg with the mud. Elephants take care of their own wounds by packing them with mud. Now, This woman said, that's strange. Hmm. I wonder what that's about. And then the elephant Linguese went back and got more mud and came back and packed her leg again. She later learned that her wound was going septic. She could have actually died if it had not been treated. So she went and treated 
this wound and afterwards realized that this elephant that she had saved, in fact, that elephant came and saved her life too. He smelled and understood that that wound was getting dangerous. I think that story just moves me so much because I think that these creatures have emotions that we just may not understand. Again, there's so many more stories like that if we only just take the time to truly watch and observe. But there's many stories like that. It's very beautiful. And as someone who doesn't around animals as much as you are, we've had discussions with neuroscientists. They say that animals don't plan things or don't rehearse things, which seems kind of strange. Another thing that occurs to me, and you must witness firsthand, is that we have this assumption that consciousness resides in the brain, but I also feel that it resides in the body. And so it's not just a measurement of brain size. <laughs> yes, I do think that we need to actually connect more, not the physical heart, but just the emotional side of ourselves with the intellectual side. And that that is part of the the path forward for a equitable world that we can all coexist. I would agree with you. I just think it is about connecting our emotional intelligence with the intellectual intelligence. They both matter. When you're photographing, you talked about establishing trust. And I, I don't know about proximity when you have this camera, it's a little large. How do you work around that? And do you like to be looking through the viewfinder? Do you like to be having that eye contact? H how does it work for you? Yes, I mean, eye contact is essential. Interestingly, when I first started working with the elephants, the metallic sound of the shutter really terrified one of the elephants whose mother had been poached. I think it may have reminded her of a gun. It took me probably nine months to gain trust with her. So yes, these tools can be very abrasive. And so understanding that people and animals may be very afraid of your camera. You know, some cultures believe that it, that the camera and taking pictures takes a bit of their soul. And I actually understand that and believe it in a way like you absolutely need their trust and acceptance and for them to agree to be a part of this process. I spend quite a bit of time just being present. In the beginning, when I first get to know people in a community, I don't even take the camera out. I just first take the time to get to know them and make sure that they understand why I'm there and that they agree to all of this. And with filmmaking, it's a little bit different because you do have to have your eye pressed up against the lens and the camera in front of you at all times. But with still images, I tend to just take a few critical moments. For example, when I took the picture of the last moment of Sudan, the last Northern male white rhino moments before he passed away saying goodbye to Jojo, his keeper. And there was this beautiful, tender moment. Later, National Geographic wanted to put that image on the cover of the magazine. And they asked me for all the pictures of that scene. And as it turns out, I only took two frames and I put my camera down because I knew that it was a terribly sensitive moment and that I did not want to take any more pictures. And Jojo told me he didn't even know I took the picture because it happened. So I just was really quiet and aware of the presence of the camera. I think to be a good storyteller, it's really important to know that it can be it's a double-edged sword. I think on the one hand, photography is incredibly powerful and it can do so much to change the world in a beautiful way. 
at the same time, it can be very destructive. And so I'm aware of that power and always thinking about it and thinking about what stories and images I'm creating and what the message is behind them. Earlier, you're talking about elephants, this idea of the shutter recalling some trauma. I know that photography is often thought of as this very literal, very practical, and sometimes even objective thing. But there are these metaphors and metaphorical associations with these animals too. For example, that idea that elephants have long memories or the powerful rhinoceros. And I was wondering if you ever feel that kind of metaphorical significance, that kind of folk wisdom impact your work in unexpected ways? Oh, I actually, I haven't thought about it. (laughs) I think my work is really, I just try to be so present. And I, I think of each elephant actually not in a metaphorical way. They're more like individuals to me because I know them each as different animals with different behavior and different quirks and personalities. And it's the same thing with the rhinos and actually any animal that I spend so much time with, you start to know them in the same way that you know people. And I, yeah, (laughs) that's, I guess that's, that's it. I like that idea though, of thinking about them as, you know, that you just gave me an idea for a new project, (laughs) but Yeah, I I think of them as individuals more. I guess um, another way to think about my question would be, do you ever feel these moments where photography is less practical and more emotional? Oh, it's always been very emotional for me. Of course, I'm always thinking about how to tell the story. So I'm not always thinking about how to make the beautiful images. I, I mean, I want the images to be beautiful and touch people, but I also am thinking about how to convey the story that I am being told by the people or, you know, the landscape or whatever it may be, there's a story there. And I think the story is as important as an image being beautiful. I think that sometimes the images can feel literal, but I'm always trying to weave in other things. And I think part of it is like to be emotional, you have to be physically close. So you will see in my images that I'm never using long lenses and far away from people or animals. I just really believe that I'm trying to show that connection that people have with the land around them or with the wildlife or with each other. And to show that effectively, I really need to be close. And to be close means that you have to have their trust. And that takes time. And so the secret to my work is very simple. It's just that I spend incredible amounts of time to tell one story. I don't just pop in for a day and try to tell a whole story. I feel actually uncomfortable if I am asked to go and tell a story about somebody in one day, because it is hard to get people to know who you are and for them to get to know vice versa. It goes both ways. I really try to push back when I'm asked to go and sort of parachute in for a quick assignment. And I ask for a little more time always, even if I'm not given that I tend to go early and just try to build those relationships. That's what is behind every image. And you really do feel that you have that relationship, which is so nice for those of us who don't get to travel to these places that whoever is the subject, I don't know if you like that word subject, but that they are us and we are them. 
Yeah, I exactly. I think it just takes time for people to feel comfortable enough to almost forget the cameras there. And so that is something I just work towards a lot. I feel like you can look at an image and immediately sense, almost smell if it's authentic or not. I can see when photographers are asking people to pose or do something in a certain way, there's something that feels untrue in it. And I think we all have that ability to kind of recognize when there's authenticity in a real moment. I just spend so much time to wait for the real moments. I think authentic moments can be felt when you've really built the trust. They can be felt and seen immediately. Vital impacts to talk. Did you want to talk about some of those artists or? Oh, sure. So I, I mean, I just, I love the work that is available in these print sales is so diverse and it feels like this incredible journey around our beautiful planet from underneath the oceans. For example, Brian Scarry and Paul Nicklin contributed the most breathtaking work that honestly, I don't even know how they got into these worlds. Brian Scarry has this image of dolphins and you feel like you are in the middle of, of them playing. There's such joy communicated. And, and the same thing actually with Paul Nicklin's The Emperor Reflections. It's these emperor penguins releasing millions of micro bubbles from their feathers and you are half in the water and half out. These are photographers actually whose works go for huge amounts in galleries. And it's extraordinary that they were so generous and donated 100% of the profits to go to this nonprofit direct relief. From the underworld to the quirky human behaviors, I mean, I just encourage people to go and explore these images, not even to buy, but just to get inspiration and to remind us of just what an extraordinary place we get to call home and how do we do more to protect it. We also have a limited edition gallery. And in that one, Nick Brandt is an incredible artist and he is working on a long-term project right now called The Day May Break. The images in the sale is the first piece of a long global series. He's doing portraying people and animals that have been impacted by climate change, environmental degradation and destruction. And so these are real people who've been impacted, who he's paired up with animals who've been orphaned as well because of this. And it is really an extraordinary body of work. There's another artist who I love named Beth Moon and Oh, she has this whole series on trees. And I don't know if anybody's read The Hidden Life of Trees. That book really profoundly changed the way I see and feel about and in our world. Trees are this beautiful metaphor for humanity. You see one thing on the top, on the surface, above the ground, but actually underneath, there's this whole ecosystem of their roots that are communicating and speaking to one another and helping one another and supporting them and giving them nutrition when they need. For example, there was this in the book, this story about how there was a trunk that was 500 years old and this whole ecosystem of trees were trying to feed it and save it still 
500 years later. I just reference that every time I look at Beth Moon's work, I think about that book and the importance of trees. And she's given personalities to these trees. You feel you know them in her work, but no, the list goes on and on and again. And then there's Jane Goodall's prints there. There's another artist named Javi Boo, who I love. He does these time lapses of birds as they're flying and weaving in the sky. And it creates this whole magical way of seeing the birds. And I love that. I love the metaphor of that. It's like only until you slow down, like slow the shutter speed down, do you truly see what's happening and see the story. One of my favorite lines is slowing down is the fastest way to get to where you want to be. (laughs) And that I think travels through all of the images, that message. We love those metaphors and those actual elements of nature as well. I feel like looking at the murmuration of birds and of course the mycelial networks of trees, it's inspiring for us when I think about how we should be working together against climate change. Yes, that's the perfect metaphor, isn't it? Exactly. I love that. You've opened up your whole creative, imaginative, compassionate world with us. I do want to speak a little bit about your films. I'm just wondering how the difference is when you're working on films like Bangladesh, how you were able to expand the conversation about climate and charting a visual path. I love the art of still photography. I think that it allows you to imagine what is happening in the image. I think the power of filmmaking is that it really gives voice back to the people in the films. And with that film, it's called Bangladesh Climate Trap. And I followed the life of one man and his family as he was being pushed off his land because of climate change and forced to move to the capital Dhaka because that was the only way to survive. Forced to move into a a slum with millions of other people in a city just bursting at its seams and cannot support more people. I think humanizing and putting a face on climate change is really important. People, and in fact, the poorest people, the ones who, who contribute the least to climate change are the ones that are being impacted the most. I spend my time now between still photography and now much more filmmaking because I think that, you know, maybe perhaps we have to use every single medium we can to push the needle forward, to make this a priority in people's lives. We all need to prioritize what is happening right now. I'm sure most of your audience knows about the sixth great extinction, next mass extinction, that it is purely human driven. And we also, as much as we have the power to destroy, we also have the power to change the cycle that we're on. And I think about many of my own images and the images of the artists that I've invited, that message goes through almost all the images you see. There's a subtle story there. As you think about the future, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I would like young people to get engaged and be the voice, be the messenger, because I think that right now, We need more people to be actively engaged in the future. This is their planet. This is their world. And they have a voice. And I think that the messenger matters as much as the message itself. You know, all of us need to be using our voices. There is a role for every single one of us and not to feel hopeless and that they can't get engaged. There's so much work to be done. There's stories 
everywhere. There's stories of great hope. And I think by focusing on the stories of hope, that is equally as important as the stories that cause great despair too. I think that we also need to celebrate the small wins and shine a light on the people behind those. And that to me is the most important thing right now. Thank you, Amy Vitali, for your stories of hope, for being the messenger, your films, images, and initiatives that bring us closer to the world and sharing your sense of wonder and compassion for cultures and places we may never visit and your commitment to conservation, sustainability, and amplifying women's voices. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Aidan Mirza with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Aidan Mirza. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. The theme music was written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.